All right, Revelation chapter 1, we'll read verses 4 through 6. We'll be focusing on verse 5 and 6 for our text. Uh, We're reading 4 through 6 because in these three verses there are two complete sentences. So that's why we're reading it that way. Revelation 1 and 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our title for the message is, The Beneficiaries of Grace. The Beneficiaries of Grace. And that is as described in the latter part of verse 5 and verse 6. If you read the first nine verses of this chapter very carefully, there's something very prominent and I think very outstanding in those verses. You see it in our text. We saw it in verse 4. And you can see it in all nine of these verses. I want to point it out quickly to you, even though it's not a part of our message. And that is there will be a subject in each verse and there will be three complementary phrases in each one of those verses. Look at it quickly with me. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the subject. Here's the complementary phrases. Which God gave to him to show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Verse 2, who bear record of God and the testimony who, John, bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and that they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches of Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come. Verse 5, of course, we have uh, really two combined here. And remember that the punctuation in paragraphs and verse deals were done by the translators much later. It would have made more sense if they had started verse 6 with unto him that loved us. But verse 5. From Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. And then we combined it with 6. Unto him that loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests unto God. Verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, every eye shall see him, they which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who am also your brother, companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ. So it's very noteworthy And it's a literary masterpiece of the Holy Spirit in a sense how that this introduction into this revelation of Jesus Christ by the Apostle John gives us those complimentary phrases verse after verse after verse. I love that style myself. 
It is so easy to understand, and that's, of course, what we try to do in preaching. We identify a subject and then complement it with phrases and illustrations. So uh, that's just wonderful. All right, I said our subject is the beneficiaries of grace. And in verse 5 and 6, we see both the benefactor and the beneficiaries. If there are beneficiaries, there must be a benefactor. And there cannot be a benefactor if he has not bestowed benefits upon those who are deemed beneficiaries. We hear this many times in everyday life and civil affairs as far as inheritances. inheritances. And usually it involves money or valuable assets. A benefactor is one who gives help or assistance to someone else, and usually it is financial in our world. But of course in the Bible, it is spiritual. And especially to we who believe, we are the beneficiaries of God's grace, and obviously God is the greatest benefactor there ever has been and ever will be. Psalm 68, 19 speaks, and it's a humble reminder to us how that, and I paraphrase, the God of our salvation daily loadeth us with benefits. Don't you love that as a child of God? I mean, it doesn't just say He daily gives us benefits. We could take that and say, well, yeah, every day He gives us what we need. No, no. <laughs> God doesn't stop at the bare necessities or just what's required with anything when it comes to bestowing grace or benefits, even general grace upon humanity. God does above and beyond. And I, my heart just leaps when I read the word loadeth. You know? I remember as kids... We were raised poor and what have you, and you know, in the, in the place we live, but everybody grew gardens and what have you. It was not uncommon when you visited a neighbor in the garden season for them to give you something that they had raised that maybe you hadn't. And you didn't just get a little, little handful. No. Here, take, here, 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 take. And you would go away, you know, just loaded with your sack or whatever. I mean, they, they loaded you with greens or peas or whatever it was, you know. It wasn't just enough for a meal. I can't help but think of that, having experienced that throughout my life. Just not the bare necessities, but He loads us. Literally, I think we could take that with all we can handle. Not that, you know, luxury, but He knows how much is enough for each of us. And our wise Heavenly Father meets that out daily loaded with benefits. That's the way we should feel. So, we are then the beneficiaries because He being the benefactor, He is the one who has given. And when God gives, that is what? Grace. God doing anything for undeserving man is grace and it is special grace to those who believe. So we are the beneficiaries. We are not benefactors. We don't have to give. We sang a while ago, this is my father's world. He made it all. It's all his. It's all his to do what he wants to, but he is gracious in that he gives 
even to fallen mankind, and then even to sinners such as ourselves. God sent His only begotten Son. God gave. And when you put God and gave two G's together, that spells G-R-A-C-E. Never forget it. So we are the beneficiaries because we receive what is given to us according to God's good pleasure, not because we deserve it, not because God is so mushy at heart, He just looks and pities us so bad. He does pity us, but His holiness will not allow His pity to become mush like ours to the neglect of His holiness and His justice. So I like being a beneficiary of God. I like looking at our Heavenly Father as the master benefactor. And of course, the majority of these benefits and the most important ones have come through Jesus Christ. So whether you're talking about benefactor or beneficiary, you are certainly talking about benefits. And let me tell you today, if you're a child of God, you have received the greatest benefit there is to be had from the greatest benefactor there is, and you could be no greater beneficiary than to have had the grace of God applied to your heart. Those who are destitute of that have nothing to compare it to. Well, in our text, let's look at the two things, the benefactor and the beneficiary. Jesus Christ, in verse 5, is described as the benefactor. Three things are said of him, as we pointed out. And let's look at those briefly, then we'll briefly look at the beneficiaries, things that apply there. The first thing that's said there is that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And I can never read that without thinking about what a peculiar and unique title that is. The faithful witness. That is a phrase or that is a title or that is a description that cannot and does not and will not ever apply to you to me or any other sinner. We just don't tell the truth all the time. The Bible says what? God is true. All men are liars. Even if we didn't intend to, we can't tell the truth all the time. Even our best effort, we can't get everything right. But the faithful witness is peculiar to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, I don't want to say that as Christians we are not to be and we don't strive to be and we cannot be called a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. We can. I'm just saying we're not without error. And we're not pure in our motive and we're not pure in our presentation and we're not pure in the knowledge we have. We are and we should be recognized with our testimony as a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, yet we realize we're not 100%, right? We're not totally pure because we're corrupted with sin. But Jesus Christ is, and I stress the article, the, as the one and only faithful witness. Every word uttered by our Lord was 100% genuine, absolute, pure truth. That's astounding to our minds because we've never heard that from anyone. We don't know anyone that's even come close to that. I mean, we know, I think like, you know how David talked about 
God's Word being pure is the honey and the honeycomb, and we know about the purity of honey and that process, right? I mean, you know, just you buy the stuff and it says pure honey, you know. No, there wasn't an artificial bee made artificial honey, you know, out of artificial flowers, did it? No, that process is one of purity. And David said the Word of God is like that. Every time Jesus opened His mouth, We're talking about the treasures of eternal wisdom being opened. And whether it was a small sentence, a parable, or an elaborate sermon, there was not one flaw, not one untruth, not one hitch in the presentation. It was all perfect. The faithful witness. You think about in our court system, you think about it in your own family. Anybody has got more than one kid knows this. Anybody can be a witness of some kind. It just, don't, it just doesn't apply that you can have that adjective faithful witness because all kids don't tell the truth and everybody swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and gets on the witness stand, don't tell the truth, do they? But again, what a wonderful thing. Every word Jesus spoke was true. On the surface, to the core, no fault, no flaw. Take it to the bank, however you want to think about it, however you want to put it. Nothing could be added to it. Nothing could be taken it away. It was the naked truth that stood. No wonder he could stand and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uniquely to him and no other. We could go on, but we've got to stop there. Well, We benefit, and I want to point this out, even though it's not in our text of the three things we're going to discuss, we benefit from Jesus being the faithful witness. And I want you to think of that point. There's a blessing in there. How do we as sinners and now children of God benefit from Jesus being the faithful witness? By believing the truth that He spoke. It's that simple. I mean... Any human could tell you something that's untrue, but Jesus didn't say anything that's untrue. And if you believe what Jesus said, I mean, believe it by faith, you are a child of God and you benefit from it. So, the way we benefit, the way any sinner benefits from the words of Jesus is by the truth of the gospel that he spoke. And briefly, what are we talking about the truth of the gospel? We're talking about what Jesus said about us. And we're talking about what Jesus said about him. And we're talking about what Jesus said about how to be saved and enter into the kingdom of God. That's something that we did not come into this world with a nature willing and able to believe. We had it all wrong. But Jesus in his own words, preaching and teaching, and in the Gospels, tells man what he is, a sinner. And he tells us who he is, the Savior. And he tells us how we're saved, by coming to him, repenting, confessing our sins. I mean, that's the greatest benefit there is. And it comes from the faithful witness. The second thing said of Jesus as benefactor is he's the first begotten of the dead. Don't take that, and probably none of you do, that first begotten of the dead means Jesus is the first person that ever came forth from the dead. He wasn't. Elisha raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. Maybe other prophets did that we don't have recorded. 
Jesus raised Lazarus and a damsel, a 12-year-old girl, and a young man. Three different ages, three different occasions, three different places, people from the dead. So Jesus wasn't the first person to come out of the grave. All right, It just means he's the first person that raised himself from the grave. Others raised others, Jesus himself. But the uniqueness of the statement is that he is the first begotten of the dead is that he and he alone had power to raise himself from the dead. And if you read the gospel accounts, you will read where it says God raised himself, God raised Christ from the dead, and it will say that Christ raised himself from the dead. That's not a contradiction if you understand the Trinity and that I and my Father are one. Bluntly put, so there's no misunderstanding, Jesus said, John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, it's my will to do so. And then he said this, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it back up. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what is meant by the first begotten of the dead. He's the first one that ever had that power, that ability to lay down a life in death and take his life right back from death. And may I remind you, he died for the sins of others, not for his own. Think about it. Adam's sin and our fall in Adam has got a death warrant on every one of us. Legitimately. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. We come forth from the womb as sinners. We have a death warrant hanging around us. And guess what? Nobody's ever kept on living. Everybody seems to die in time, don't they? Jesus didn't have that. He was born of a virgin. He had not the nature of you and I and Adam's sin. That's the importance of the virgin birth. He had no earthly father. He had a mother... That was necessary for him to be incarnate. But the curse of Adam's sin was not on him like it was us. He took our sins and then laid down his life as the penalty. And so in that sense, I usually say something like this. Death, the grave, had no legitimate claim on Jesus Christ. And as the song we said this week, since it had no... Le- or listen to this week. Uh, they ain't no grave going to hold believers down, but they certainly not any grave that has a claim on the Son of God because he had no sin of his own. So, what's the benefit of that to us? How do we benefit from Jesus raising himself from the dead? Because the promise is to us that if I have power to lay down my life and take it up again, I can certainly take you up again. And that's what he's promised us, hasn't it? That there will be a resurrection, there will be a trump, there will be a shout, there will be a calling forth, and the dead are going to rise. And he gave us a preview of that, didn't he, when he went to Lazarus' grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And out of there a dead man heard and responded. So, we benefit from Christ being the first begotten of the dead. The third thing, prince of the kings of the earth. Prince is a word we don't use much. Shows up in movies, fairy tales, books, novels, and things like that. Very common in the Bible. It is a person, of course, who uh, 
can be a king or is a king or on their way to being a king, but a prominent, noble individual. How many kings of the earth do you suppose there have been up to this point in human history? We couldn't enumerate them. History can't label them all and tell us all about them. There's been some great ones. There's been some sorry ones. There's some great ones. There's some sorry ones now in prominent positions. But Jesus alone has the title of the prince of all the kings of the earth. And I'll just quickly point this out to you. Probably no place makes this more more prominent than in Daniel's vision that he saw, or the interpretation thereof he gave, about the kingdoms that would follow Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream in that? The things he saw and Daniel interpreted? The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, the Roman kingdom, and then there's going to be a kingdom that's going to supersede all of those kingdoms. And you know who the king over that kingdom is going to be? Jesus Christ. So even though he has not yet manifest and established himself visibly as the prince of all the kings of the earth and a kingdom that supersedes all kingdoms, He is, nevertheless, and I remind you, always has been the sovereign king over all the sovereign kings of the earth. And that's exactly what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't it? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And that's what all kings should learn. And that's why the kings of Israel were required to read the book of the law once a year, at least. To remember that as Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, God raises men up and sets them on a throne and at His discretion and will, He takes them off of that throne and can put somebody else there. And I love the way Daniel presented that to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you don't know that there's a God in heaven and He rules over men. And he determines who's going to be king and who's not. Nebuchadnezzar was patting himself on the back and saying, look what I've done. I did it, I did it, I did it. You know? Pretty common these days, right, to hear that. That's an old slogan. People have been thinking that since the fall of Adam, that they did it. You know? What about Babel? But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar learned, praise God, God saved that man, and then he knew, oh yeah, it wasn't me. Like the song again, I can't get it off my mind. He learned he couldn't even walk. (laughs) That God did what he wanted to among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And he set up kings and he take kings down and he's doing it today. What a blessing. That's a benefit, isn't it? The other benefit is that he has promised that when he sets up his kingdom in a visible manifestation in an earthly reign, The saints of God will rule and reign with Him. Wow. Unbelievable. When He does that, He will, of course, establish Himself. And Revelation 19, 16 says this. When He comes, remember, we used to read that. We won't take the time for time's sake. But He comes and He has written on His thigh, what? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's it. Again, another unique title, right? The king of all kings. How many kings, how many queens have thought that they were, like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all kings? Or the queen of all queens. The greatest there ever has been. And some at their appropriate times may very well have been. 
but they had no far-reaching power and authority as the one who is, as we're told in Scripture, the King of kings and Lord of all lords. And we're going to be a part of that. What a benefit. Well, that's our benefactor. That's enough to say hallelujah and go home, isn't it? Let's look at our beneficiaries and their benefits there in verse 5 and 6. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. So who are the beneficiaries of his grace? Those who have believed in him for their salvation. Believe the gospel that he preached and taught and are trusting in him even in death of a resurrection. The beneficiaries are not those who have done but who are trusting in what he has already done. You know, Arminianism doesn't allow Jesus to be the complete benefactor. And that's the problem with Arminianism. It's all of grace. And Arminianism denies that. Well, there's a percentage. God has done so much and you've got to do get your part in there and it's more than two cents to an Armenian. But the Bible, even in the verses I've read to you, and I could go to a whole lot more, what do I always say? It's always God that's doing the doing. (laughs) All we find man doing is sinning. We don't find man doing anything to redeem himself. God did it all. Jesus paid it all. God does the doing. That's sovereign grace. And the first thing it says he has done here, is he loved us. Wow, what a subject. The Bible says, John said, God is love. Three little words. And you could repeat it from now till you run out of breath and die. And you'd never comprehend all the meaning in those three little words. God is. That's what he is. It's what he's always been. It's what he always will be. He has not changed. He will not change. He is love. If you want to talk about love, I've said it. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'll keep on saying it. You start with God. There's where the origin of love is. There's where the true definition of love is. There's where the greatest manifestation of love is. That is the source of love. That's where you begin. You don't start with people. You start with God. Man is not love. God is love. However, A great misunderstanding is that because God is love, then God should love. And God nowhere declares that in His Word. Because He is something doesn't mean that He has to or is obligated to bestow it. And and I'll use an illustration today, and it may be getting into politics, and I don't mean to get into politics, but it's a good illustration. We're living in this mentality and idea that if you got a lot, you should give it away to somebody else that don't have it. Really? Uh, Where does the Bible say that you are obligated completely? I'm not saying we shouldn't give to the poor. Jesus taught that. And Jesus taught about giving and how blessed it is. I'm not saying. I'm not going against that. But let me also remind you, he condemned obligatory, if I can say it to it, giving. That, okay, you gave me something. I've got to give you something back. You know, that's, that's rooted in pride. 
in that regard. God is under no obligation to love anybody just because He's a God of love. God would be a God of love if He didn't love anybody. God is what He is in all its pureness and holiness. However, if you understand the love of God, you know that God could not just keep His love capped up. And this is the great plan of redemption, that because of who God is, God manifests who He is in the plan of redemption. So redemption, salvation, God's goodness, God's grace, it all starts, it has its root, it has its fountain, it has its source of origin in the fact that God is love. I think it's a good word for understanding, but I hesitate to use it because of theological correctness that, again, the motive, and again, you take that loosely, all right? The motive to redeem, the aim, the purpose, the goal of God's plan to redeem fallen mankind still starts and is rooted in the love of God. That's where it starts. You can't go back any further than that. Well, what was before the love of God? Nothing. As long as there's been God who is eternal, He has been a God of love, and that love has been eternal. And let me also say that love has been fixed upon certain objects of this race as long as God has been God. God's love is just, again, I I don't know. I love it, but it's like swimming in the ocean. There's just... There's no shore anywhere in sight and you can swim till you wear out and you don't feel like you've got anywhere and the ocean's still as deep as it was and there's still plenty of it all around you. I don't know. That's the love of God. I don't feel bad about that because it seems that the Apostle John, the Apostle of love, was just as carried away and ecstatic about the love of God as I am. So no apologies necessary. But... Again, the plan, purpose, motive all springs from God's eternal love. May I share a few scriptures with you from John the Apostle, who again, and I'm not saying that cute when I say he was the Apostle of love, but certainly God spoke more to us through him of love, truth, and various other things and the deity of Jesus Christ than any of the other apostles. In John chapter 15 verse 9, after the vine and the branches. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, continuing me in my love. Do you understand that? Of course not. None of us understand the love between the Father and the Son. We can understand the love between ourselves and our parents and the love between us and our children. But I don't even come close to the love of the Father and the Son. Because again, it's absolutely pure. It's absolutely perfect. It, it's, it's, it's in a category all its own. And yet Jesus said, As the Father loves me, so have I loved you. That simply means not one iota less do I love you than how my Father loves me. It's not a different love. It's the same love. The same quality of love. And if we could put it in a quantity, it's the same quantity of love. Do I understand that? Absolutely not. That is way over my head. Do I rejoice in it? You better believe it. 
John chapter 17, the intercessory prayer, verse 23, I am them and thou in me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved. Can you just say it one time? It's in the intercessory prayer he said that. Jeremiah, of course, is the one who made that statement uh, that God speaking, yea, I have loved them with an everlasting love. That's the only kind of love God's in. You know, God has only one kind of love. It's everlasting. It's immutable. It's pure. It never changes. I mean, that's it. There's no better love. That is love. That's the definition of love. There we go. Let me throw one more to you that may bless your heart. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. We, this comes, of course, after uh, all the things said about our former life when we were unquickened or dead in trespass sin. But God, and that's the part we love, don't we? I mean, verse 2 and 3 is pretty tough. Pretty tough, what we were, right? Man, do we love that contrast. But God, I mean, there's intervention. There's sovereign grace. Who is rich in mercy for His great love wherein He loved us. And if we had a bigger adjective than great, we'd put it there. But we don't have anything bigger than great, do we? Or humongous or magnanimous or whatever. But use the biggest adjective you can and you still haven't touched the magnitude of God's great love. And I want to say one more thing before we pass this point. I must always make a distinction because some may not who hear me understand, there is a difference when we're talking about God's love and human love. You know, I stand here and talk about God's love and people have experienced human love and they think they know what I'm talking about. You don't have a clue what I'm talking about. What do people love? Things that are attractive. Things that are beneficial. Things that are appealing. Things that bring happiness. Things that bring pleasure. That's natural. You say, what do you mean? I fed my mules hay this morning. You know what? They love it. Why? Because it's their nature to eat grass. If they could express it, they'd say, man, I love this hay. You could tell by the way they're eating it. That's no big thing. Human beings are like animals. They love things that satisfy or gratify or give joy or happiness or pleasure. And we just finished a series about joy and happiness. You all know what I'm talking about there. Do you realize that God's love is bestowed just the opposite on the most unlovable, loathsome, despicable creatures that they are? Do you like people that like you? Do you love people that love you? Do you love being around people that love being around you and their friends? You know, well, we all do. It's that reciprocal thing going on. That's human nature. You know? Hog loves the, loves the wallow in the mud because it cools them off and that's their nature. You know? But God loved the unlovable. And that means you, me, the detestable. And I won't spend time here, but the Bible's full of it. God finds sinners detestable to this day. He's angry with the wicked every day. 
He looks upon sin with displeasure. And yet in spite of His holiness and His justice looking upon sin and sinners that way, His love and His mercy in that, He still set His love upon sinners who are what? Lawbringers, lawbreakers, profaners of His name, profaners of His Sabbath, breakers of His law, criminals to His... How do you love like that? We can't. Except the love of God has been manifested to us. That is unnatural love. But we can now, by the grace of God and the love of God, love our enemies, can't we? For the simple fact that when God loved you, He was loving an enemy. He was not loving a friend. So, just take that point. The love of God so far surpasses what we know of love as human beings. It's not even close. He loved His enemies. May I illustrate it? hanging on the cross, having saved the thief, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Speaks for itself. Secondly, washed us from our sins. Here, of course, is the supreme manifestation of God's love. You see it nowhere else. You don't see God's love in creation like you do in redemption. You don't see God's love anywhere. You will never see God's love anywhere. You won't see God's love in the mansions of heaven any clearer than you do by seeing God's Son on the cross of Calvary. There's where God manifested once and for all. The apex, the climax, the point of all human history which everything else revolves around was when Jesus Christ went to the cross for six hours. Because there, suspended between heaven and earth, the one thing, if anybody ever asks you this question, what, what do you see with the Son of God hanging on the cross? The only correct answer, the supreme answer is, the great manifestation of God's love for sinners. God so loved, he sent, He gave His Son. Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down His life for His enemies who would become His friends. Amazing grace, amazing love. And it's all again what He did. I mean, what does the text say? He washed us. Now I ask you, what part did you have in that? The kids up there this yesterday and what have you and you know all ages I mean dirty mud everything everywhere and I thought about this and I was thinking about well you know they're they're all live an age they can clean themselves to some degree they may not get it all done I remember when I was a kid and I didn't get it done behind the ears or in the neck and I got the tissue spit scrub you know from mother on the way to town or to church or whatever but I thought back of a little infant baby. A, a, a little baby is helpless. It, it doesn't even know it needs to be cleaned. 
It just knows it's uncomfortable because it's wet or it's, it's poopy. It's uncomfortable, but it doesn't know it needs to be clean. And it certainly is incapable, totally incapable, of cleaning themselves. Doing anything for themselves. Well, you know what? That's us. That's the picture of sinners. We don't know how dirty we are. We really don't know we need to be cleaned up, even though we're told we're dirty. And we're certain unwilling and incapable. And then I thought this. I don't have time to go into it, but you read it on your own. Jesus, or the prophet, used the illustration in Ezekiel 16 about Israel, how they were like a child that had been born and literally just cast out. Not laid on the doorstep, just born and thrown out in the field. And he described them, your navel was not cut, you had not been salted, you were laying there in your own blood and afterbirth and so forth and so on. When Jesus, I mean, helpless, hopeless, filthy. And that turns into a marvelous picture of grace, Ezekiel 16. You read it on your own for your own blessing. But again, He washed us from our own sins. And think of this, only He could do that. Only someone else could. And it couldn't be when it comes to redemption, just anybody. When you were a baby, anybody could change your diaper. Anybody could give you a bath. But when it comes to redemption, there's only one that can do it. And if you don't get that right, you're not cleaned. You're not purified from sin. Now, again, not many people, I'm, I'm not being cute here, but not a lot of people, especially a lot of men, like changing poopy diapers. Jesus had the desire, was willing, and was able to wash us from our own sins. How? Why? Why would he leave glory to that? Because of the great love. We'd uncovered that. He loved us. And that's what it took. And he manifested that. I must say this. It is so sad when we read this clear teaching of Scripture, and this is repeated numerous other places in Scripture, all right? We're washed by the blood. Why do you think we got so many songs in our hymnals about being washed from a blood? Washed by the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood. Why is that? Because blood redemption is the only kind that really cleanses. And it's only Jesus' blood. Why then? Why then? Do sinners, religionists, denominations make the efforts they make to cleanse themselves when the Bible says you can't do it? You can't no more wash away your sins than a leopard can wish away its spots. Or an Ethiopian could scrub and scrub and make himself white. It ain't going to happen. It's in, it's in the pigment. It's down deep. When you get done, guess what? The stain's still there. And it'll come right back and manifest itself all over again. Just like stains in clothes. <laughs> Some of them you just can't get them out. You just got to throw away the garment. Jesus was willing, able, and desirous. And He laid down His life. He sacrificed Himself. He shed His blood to wash us from our sins. And I must touch upon just, in, just briefly on that. Think about that. And it's so sad, it burdens my heart, it breaks my heart to see those who are teaching and practicing that your works will wash you clean. No, they won't. Well, baptismal waters will wash you. No, it won't. What, is, what, what, what are we missing here? Unto Him that loved us and what? Let's just infer and insert. He washed us 
from our sins in His own blood. There's no way you can misunderstand that unless you want to misunderstand that. You say, well, what about all the Old Testament sacrifices? They never took away one sin. Read Hebrews, what does it say? Not by the blood of bulls and goats. Sheep, lambs, none of it. And when I think of that, I, I, you talk about a bloodbath of proportions that you and I can't imagine. We can't imagine. How many animals were killed, how much blood was spilt, how much blood was sprinkled, how much blood was poured, and not one sin was ever remitted by any of it. It was only a picture of. Oh, and my heart leaps with joy when I think of this. The high priest went in once a year with the blood of bulls and ghosts. Jesus entered the holy place one time with his own blood. And it did more than all of that put together. His blood. His blood. He was beaten, shed his blood. Crown of thorns was stuck on his brow, shed his blood before he even got to the cross. Pilate scourged him, he bled more. To the point that he couldn't get to the cross. With the cross, somebody else had to carry it. And then on the cross, he was pierced hands and feet. And then before he died, he was pierced in the side, and out come blood and water. It was a process of shedding blood. And because of that blood, we have remissions of sins. Final effect, made us kings and priests unto God. This is an effect. Here's a beneficiary. You're a child of God today. You're a king. See, I don't feel like a king. Well, you are. You are. So I'm not wearing a crown. Yeah, well, you got one coming if you're a child of God. The thought here is not that we take a position of dignity among men here on this earth. No, no. Our reward is not here and now in the physical earthly realm. A king is one thing. An exalted person in an exalted position. If your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, you are in a place of the greatest exaltation. And let me put it to you bluntly, shall I? The Bible talks about how that amazing grace were taken out of the mire. Let me, let me put it more bluntly like Paul would say, we have been lifted from the dunghill of sin and set with Christ in the presence of the Father on high. Exalted. Exalted. Power, honor, dignity is associated with a king or a queen. We have been granted all of that spiritually through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our time is up. I've got to close. Let me make a comment about priests. This is a sermon all its own on kings and priests. There's just so much. But think about it, priest. In the Old Testament, there had to be a priest for what purpose? To intercede, minister the things of God. Oh, and how glorious that when Jesus said, It is finished, and Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, the veil of the temple was rent. And the writer of Hebrews says, Now we can come boldly to the throne of grace. You are your own priest because the high priest sets alive and will at the right hand of God the Father. We would not in any capacity 
be a priest if the high priest was not alive and well. But because he is, he's made us priest. We have access to God through him. He's alive and well. He's right there now. We don't have to go through an earthly priest and shouldn't go through an earthly priest and shouldn't go through a church and shouldn't go try to get to God through any means other than the way, the truth, and the life because that's the only way. What a blessing to come boldly and humbly. Peter said we're, we're part of a royal priesthood, <laughs> an elite group, the beneficiaries of grace. If you're saved today, you're the beneficiary of grace. If you're lost, you hear me on this tape or whatever? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on God's provision for sin and you can be a beneficiary of grace. What do we say to these things? John already said it. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.